Hey Jay, is Arcadia a deviant or a mutant or or what? Arcadia Deville? It's unclear. All we really know is that she's got intense reality warping powers, which the deviants want to use to their own ends. And the deviants are the first offshoot of humanity created by the celestials, yeah? It's not just like a kink thing. Right. And they have powers. Exactly. They're like, say, a thumbnail version of mutants, uh, evolved from Homo erectus instead of Homo sapiens. So what do they need Arcadia for? Again, she's a really powerful reality warper, and her powers are undeveloped enough that presumably they see her as potentially controllable. How out of control are we talking? Is this going to be another House of M situation, where she remakes the world in her image? Nah, nothing on that scale. Although, at one point, she is going to manifest... Don't tell me. Psychic armor? A car? A fortress? The Demon Bear. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 427 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the end of the road. Or, I guess our last X-Force episode was technically the end of the road, so the beginning of not the road. Doesn't have the same ring to it. You make it sound like X-Force is ending, and I feel like it's important that we specify that it's not, given what's going on in X-Factor and Excalibur these days. Oh, that's a good point. X-Force will go on for so much longer that it will have its premise completely replaced at one point. That's right, it will become a reality TV show. It totally will. Uh, but we're a ways from that still. In fact, we are still well within the John Francis Moore run. What we are at the end of, however, is the end of Adam Polina's run as X-Force's regular penciler. That's a shame. We've really seen Polina develop pretty significantly as a penciler across his run on X-Force. Um, he's gone to someone from someone I had pretty mixed feelings about to someone who was a really, really, really solid fit on the book. Oh, yeah, yeah. At this point, after covering his entire X-Force run, he is like one of my X-Universe all-timers. But we have a lot to cover, so we should probably dive in. But, you know, not without context. So, after a series of stops in a town full of mutant kids, Las Vegas, the afterlife, a dimension of scary cartoon bunnies, and the Marvel Universe's rough equivalent to Burning Man, X-Force's road trip is finally over and the team has settled in San Francisco. Their lineup of early 20-somethings, however, remains the same. We've got... Founding New Mutant Sunspot, freshly reunited with his family fortune, um, and likewise founding New Mutant Mirage, now going by her last name, Moonstar, because that's an effective codename. We also have the former Hellion and longtime X-Forcer Warpath, who is also now going by his last name, Proudstar. Tabitha Smith, a.k.a. Boom Boom, a.k.a. Boomer, a.k.a. Meltdown, um, is not going by Smith, she's going by Meltdown still, um, and continues to be an agent of chaos. And then there's team leader and Banshee's daughter, Siren, who's finally getting some goddamn respect. Meanwhile, former team member and wine mom Domino has had her powers messed up by her old enemy, Ekaterina Grezanova. She's been having a rough time. She's been on her own, ostensibly as a mercenary, but mostly she keeps falling into the role of reluctant hero. 
and additional founding New Mutant, founding X-Force member, and currently X-Force member Emeritus, Cannonball has been getting more and more fed up with his time on the X-Men. He feels like he doesn't really fit in, but back on his previous team, he's got some complaints also because his best friend Sunspot and his recently ex-girlfriend Boom Boom have been hooking up. Anyway, after their extensive travels, it's time for X-Force to take a break with some additional traveling. That brings us to X-Force number 81, Hot Lava. Written by John Francis Moore, penciled for Sadly the Last Time by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, with background assists by Guillermo Zubiaga, colors by Marie Javins, and letters by Comicraft. Polina has done most of X-Force since number 44. I didn't realize how long he was on this book. Wow, that is, he's definitely the most consistent artist associated with the title, and I think at this point he's had a longer run than any individual writer did. Uh, he may very well have, I'm not really sure. Now, he didn't do all of those issues, uh, he definitely took a number of breaks here and there, but still. No, but he was the regular artist through, throughout that time. Yes, very much so. And man, Polina goes all out with this issue. And we see that from the very beginning with these genuinely rad-looking images of Hawaiian goddesses as part of mountains and oceans and flames. And as we see these images, we learn a little bit of Hawaiian mythology. We learn about Pele, the goddess of volcanoes, who fled to the big island of Hawaii to escape her angry sister, Namaka Okai, who's the goddess of sea and water, who was pretty pissed that Pele stole her man, which, I mean, fair enough. And their fight apparently shaped the Hawaiian islands. And in the fight, when Pele's mortal body was finally killed, she ascended to true godhood, and from then on just sort of manifested to various people in various forms. None of this initially has anything to do with X-Force, it's just a little history and mythology lesson, but if I get to watch Adam Polina draw all of these divine struggles and symbolic representations of deities and stuff in his style, like, I'll take it. It's, it's worth noting that Pele is, is one of the deities who regularly reappears in the Marvel Universe. I don't know to what extent she did before this, but subsequently she's going to show up a fair lot. Oh, she was at least implied to appear in uh, one character's comic. Do you know whose? Um, I, I got nothing, man. Frank Punisher. Pele allied with Frank goddamn Punisher. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, um, X-Force seems a little wiser to uh, hang out with than, than the Punisher. I wouldn't rent a speedboat to them either, though. Yeah, really, you shouldn't rent a speedboat to many people in the Marvel Universe. It's kind of like how John Doggett was the only character in the X-Files who really should have been trusted with a gun. And even that was a little iffy. Sometimes, Yeah. Well, for now, X-Force uh, isn't thinking at all about violence, uh, or guns, I guess. Uh, they are on vacation. They are taking a break after their road trip, which I get. Sometimes you need a vacation to recover from your vacation. Their last trip to an island, or their last attempt at an island vacation, you'll recall, got waylaid by the Impossible Man, so there's really nowhere to go from there but up. Oh yeah, that was in the Cable X-Force annual from 1995. I remember that. Well, they're having a great time, or at least some of them are. Sunspot is confidently surfing, showing off his skills, with Boom Boom clinging terrified to his back. They, of course, capsize, because as a non-surfer, I understand that is the way every surfing uh, surf ends. And as Boom Boom falls underwater, she notices what appear to be an army of tiki gods walking on the seafloor. As one does. The rest of X-Force is just chilling and relaxing on the beach, the other three members. 
They're also all talking about how Sunspot seems to have been really overcompensating since getting his wealth back, just showing off, spending conspicuously for his friend's benefit. Like, they appreciate it, but he seems so much less down-to-earth than he's been. I mean, that's kind of always been his thing and will continue to be his thing indefinitely. Yeah, yeah, the way he's been recently, uh, the version of Bobby that Boom Boom was attracted to, is kind of an exception. He is typically not a humble, normal, chill dude. No, none of those are words that I would use to describe Bobby DaCosta. <laughs> nope. But yeah, Adam Polina here is great at getting characters' personalities across with what they're wearing, as he always, always is. Sunspot's in these loud, bright red swim trunks. Boom Boom is wearing this stylish zippered two-piece. Remember, Boom Boom is always very fashionable. Proudstar is just wearing denim shorts. Siren's in a modest but stylish one-piece. Moonstar's wearing a leopard print bikini and wearing headphones and shades and a tropical drink that she's holding while reading. Like, even just looking at this panel, looking at these characters and what they're wearing and their body language and their facial expressions and how they're positioned, like, already tells you so much about them. You don't need a danger room cold open when you have Adam Polina just drawing characters hanging out at a beach. Absolutely. Boom Boom brings the rest of X-Force down to the ocean floor to see these tiki gods. Uh, she briefly ponders what they would be called, like a flock or what. But, uh, no, no, all this down there are some really goofy-looking Polina-drawn fish. And Siren even makes a reference to, um, a Brady Bunch story? Did, did Tiki Gods make regular appearances on the Brady Bunch? I, I realize that I've I've missed a lot of television, but I I feel like that that wasn't really in the spec. Uh, there was definitely a story where they went on a Hawaiian vacation and some weird shit happened, but uh, I don't really remember it. I guess Teresa remembers it better than we did. She does point out that they had American TV at Cassidy Keep where she was raised, you know, alongside presumably the Leprechauns. You know, the leprechauns watching a lot of American TV makes so much sense to me. Kind of does, doesn't it? Well, anyway, no tiki gods, so they continue their vacation. They head off to a luau at a resort, uh, so perhaps not the most, you know, traditional uh, one. And Sunspot's just being himself. He's flashing his money around, he's flirting with everybody— Boom Boom is incorrectly addressing her annoyance to the object of his flirtation instead of at him, which is unfortunate. And so we, we see at least one one waitress um, you know, thinking about how she needs a raise, and they don't pay her enough to put up with every half-drunk jerk, and you know, maybe she needs a vacation, maybe she'll just go to Alaska. Like, I know that the joke here is that somebody who lives in, quote, paradise wants to go to, like, the other remote state that nobody would consider to be paradise— but I'm just imagining her showing up all excited with her baggage, stepping off the plane and just seeing, like, various moping Summerses scattered all around the landscape with the moose. Well, that's assuming she even gets through Canada. Oh, that's true. That shit's dangerous. Frickin' Wendigos and Black Ops government operations and ugh, all sorts of nonsense. Proudstar wanders away from the resort out to the beach, where he finds, to his surprise, Risk. This is Gloria Munoz, his ex-girlfriend, whom he ran off with and who then totally betrayed him to her boss, Sledge. And I'm just going to keep coming back to the art in this issue because this simple sunset beach scene is freaking breathtaking, like postcard perfect. It's beautiful. And Risk herself is just dressed in this flowing dress. She herself is beautifully drawn. Like everything just looks so goddamn idyllic. It's wonderful. Now, Risk wants... James's help. 
and she is 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 appealing to their previous connection, and he is not inclined to help her until Crotok the Lava Man rises from the water to capture her. And and it's it's here that I want to point out that this this issue is all about the Kirby monsters. Oh yeah, various lava men with various silly names. It is a goddamn delight. And there's this great panel as this Kirby monster rises out of the water of Riss just screaming James while her hair is just all standing up straight. It's so cartoonishly delightful. So they book it. They run the hell out of there back to the luau to get help. And Crotok the Lava Man doesn't follow because he's been told by the Lava Man High Priest, I love that phrase, to be subtle, to avoid notice, so that the Avengers don't come after the Lava Men again. Because, yeah, the Lava Men have been around for a long time. Like you said, Jay, I think Jack Kirby was the one that created them. Uh, They first appeared in Journey into Mystery in 1963. And the listener with a long memory might recall Matoxo the Lava Man, who was first advertised in 1968's Uncanny Number 48, but who didn't actually appear until Kurt Busiek willed Matoxo into a comic in the 1994 Marvel Holiday Special, where he learned the true meaning of Christmas from Beast and Iceman. Matoxo, not Kurt. Uh, right, Kurt Busiek. I, I don't know whether or not Kurt Busiek knows the true meaning of Christmas. He knows a lot of things. I, I assume so, since he wrote the issue in which Nice Man and Beast teach it to Matoxa the Lava Man. Oh yeah, the transitive property of the true meaning of Christmas. Or season one of Lost. As the case may be. Anyway, Risk explains to the mostly nonplussed X-Force, they are not excited to see her after what she's pulled, that she came here with her associates Sledge and the Vanisher, um, who are other, you know, thieves, to steal the heart of Pele, a Hawaiian artifact that was hidden when the first Europeans showed up on the islands. But unfortunately, the Lava Men also showed up to steal it at the same time, and uh, Sledge has been missing ever since. And additionally, and perhaps most relevantly, if the heart isn't returned, the Kalauea and Mauna Loa volcanoes will both erupt really hard simultaneously and just destroy all of the islands and kill everyone. So that's a problem. It's, It's not great. So, X-Force may be on vacation, but A, they're heroes, and B, this is a comic, and if it was just them relaxing, there'd be less of a plot. They agree to help, and they head to Kilauea. Boom Boom, of course, is Boom Boom. Promise me no one's going to be sacrificed to the volcano. Which Sunspot responds. You don't have to worry, Tab. You're not a... Shut up, Bobby! (laughs) Kids... Uh, Risk actually points out here that Pele never demanded blood tribute. That was Ku, the god of war, who did. She knows a shocking amount about Hawaiian mythology. And there's a reason for that, which we're going to come back to in a bit. Now, Moonstar is surprised that Risk talks about this stuff as if it's just plain fact in history. And Risk makes the pretty salient counterpoint. You're a Cheyenne who stood in the halls of Asgard. How can you doubt the existence of other gods? Valid point. That is one thing I love about the Marvel Universe. Everything is real. It covers so many different genres and so many different mythologies that it's just like a kitchen sink of, uh, like, supernatural stuff. So they head to the volcano, and they find Sledge, and he's here, he's okay. His head remains enormous. And unfortunately for all of them, he is closely followed by the Lava Men. Now, Sledge had wanted to sell the heart to the highest bidder, but the high priest Shinku of the Lava Men says that he wants to use it to unite the lost tribes of Gortokia under his rule. 
the Lost Tribes of Gortokia? Okay, so I looked this up, um, and this is this actually ties into some stuff that's going to be happening later in X-Force, um, because he is referring to the Gortokians. They're a slave race created by the Deviants who were wiped out when they rebelled against their creators. And until this point, it was believed that the only living Gortokian was Grotesque, who made his debut in X-Men number 41. And this is, this is kind of foreshadowing, if you know a lot of very deep dive stuff, um, because the Deviants are about to be a very big deal in X-Force. Oh, there's so much Jack Kirby stuff going on. The Lava Men were Jack Kirby, the Gortokians were Jack Kirby, the Deviants and the Eternals and the Celestials are Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby, what a great imagination. What a great pen. What a great habit of punching Nazis. Speaking of Kirby and Kirby monsters, Jinku is a big red rock monster like the other Lava Men, but he has a beautiful golden crown and a great big beard. Well done, Jinku. I can see why they put you in charge. So, Sledge and Risk, being consummate criminals, are also consummate fast talkers. Hey, they don't have the heart. The Vanisher ran off with it. Uh, But if the Lava Men just don't kill them, they can go get the heart back from the Vanisher and give it to the Lava Men, and then everybody wins. The Lava Men say, okay, well, two of you can go, and the rest of you stay, and if the two don't come back with the heart, we kill everyone. So, they send their flyers, Siren and Sunspot, off to find the Vanisher, who just went to Maui, like, right nearby. He didn't go very far. He just stole the thing, and now he's doing a vacation kind of next door-ish. This is apparently his his secret trick to hiding out, is that everyone assumes he'd flee, and he just stays near the crime scene. I love how good the Vanisher is at being a criminal shithead. Like, he's he's just awful, but he's really entertaining. The Vanisher, of course, is a villain that first showed up in the Silver Age, and his power is to teleport, or vanish. Uh, he, I believe, was the first instance of Professor X making defeating a villain by erasing his memory, uh, which, of course, will be quite the habit Xavier will have. Later on, he's going to play a critical role in, actually, Boom Boom's origin story uh, before she joins X-Factor. Uh, true as well. And, in fact, Boom Boom would be on The Fallen Angels, a group of runaways uh, who were led by the Vanisher. She remembers this. She's mentioned this a couple of times when he's interacted with X-Force recently during John Francis Moore's run, that she hates the dude for this. Uh, interestingly, two other members of The Fallen Angels who are on X-Force, Siren and Sunspot, don't mention any association with the Vanisher. Also, interestingly, when Siren uh, decides to be the one to go talk to the Vanisher because he's never seen her before, he doesn't recognize her. Look, we get it. Writers forget these things. It's fine. However, I have a no prize. I think I know why the Vanisher doesn't recognize Siren here. Well, I I think I know why the writer, what exactly what error the writer is making, which is that he's conflating fallen angels with with Boom Boom's origin. Oh, 100%. However, what Siren does here is she sexifies her outfit, she cuts her skirt short, and she hikes up her cleavage in her shirt, and she decides if she's going to be sexy and in disguise, she needs to di- she needs to ditch the Irish accent, and so she imitates Rogue's accent. So this is her sexy persona, wearing less and talking like Rogue. And the Vanisher is not the sharpest crayon in the box, so I can totally see him forgetting any prior association just in favor of, ooh, lady... I like the idea that the Vanisher does not keep track of the kids he recruits. Like, that they are all just completely interchangeable to him. I think they totally are. Like, he clearly only ever uses them to steal stuff and then doesn't give a shit what happens to them. Oh yeah, like, he has no personal investment in these kids. I am stunned that he remembers any of their names, ever. He's the best at being the worst. I kind of love the Vanisher. Yeah, yeah, again, he's 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 terrible but entertaining. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, this sexy distraction totally works, which gives Siren and Sunspot a chance to jump the Vanisher and hogtie him and look through his stuff. And in fact, they do find the heart of Pele, this enormous goddamn glowing gem rock thing, just like in his duffel bag, along with apparently a stolen hotel robe and 20 stolen mini bottles of shampoo. Okay. Wait a minute, shampoo? The, the Vanisher's bald, is that for his... Guests! Guests, Miles, it's for his guests. Yeah, that's probably better. Uh, anyway, so, um, Jinku, the Lava Man King, with his shiny little crown and big beard that's made of rock, is happy to get the heart of Pele back, and then elaborates on his plan... He's going to unite the Lost Tribes of Gortokia, sure, but he's also going to, you know, use the Heart of Pele to utterly destroy the surface world by using its power to power a giant drill that's going to drill into the Earth and activate every volcano in the world simultaneously and kill all the humans. In all fairness, humans do suck. I mean, maybe Namor had a point, yeah. Uh, so there's a big fight, and the heroes win because the heroes are awesome, and the Lava Men, while badass, are less awesome— and afterward, Risk, who's been acting, like, super strange, like, all spiritual and very knowledgeable about mythology and very solemn, reveals herself to not, in fact, be Risk. It's, uh, Pele, the Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, disguised as Risk. Apparently, Pele always wanted to get her heart back from where it was hidden, but thanks to her jealous sister's magic, she couldn't for, you know, centuries— so she saw Risk among the thieves, knocked her out, left her on a beach, and went to go recruit X-Force. I love that that was her plan, and I love that it 100% worked. Yes. Yes, it did. So Pele is overjoyed. I mean, she hasn't had her heart for, like, generations. So she offers X-Force anything they desire. And, uh... They point out, okay, we've dealt with deities before, um, thank you, but you know what, we're, we're good, we're just gonna keep it simple. She does at least tell them, though, that they're welcome to stay on the islands for the rest of their lives in peace and raise kids, or at least just hang out and chill for a while. Uh, Boom Boom is sort of pondering this whole thing. Remember, she's always been a little uh, iffy about gods, ever since that time she was in Asgard. Danny, you're the expert. Does this count as a mystical experience or a spiritual one? I'm never sure how reverent I'm supposed to be when dealing with gods. I mean, I could never sit still in Sunday school. So there we go. Polina's last issue. What a delight. It's like a silly one-off story. It ties in a little to what's going to happen, but not really all that much. It's just fun. And I also really appreciate that despite none of the characters being uh, Native Hawaiians, uh, the person behind this whole plot is not just that, but specifically a Hawaiian goddess. Like, it's just a really enjoyable story, and it's got fucking lava men. And not only that, but it ends with a big pinup by Adam Polina in honor of his last issue, with the gang on a road trip and the last cameo of Boom Boom's bunny slippers. Oh, it's wonderful. They're all, like, changing back into their superhero uh, costumes as there's a big mushroom cloud in the distance. So, farewell, Adam Polina. Hell of a run. But John Francis Moores continues into X-Force number 82, The Griffin Agenda, written by, well, John Francis Moore, penciled by Jim Chung, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. Uh, so yeah, Jim Chung is our new regular artist. Um, he's going to draw most of the issues of the series up until X-Force number 100, which is also John Francis Moore's last issue. What do you think of Jim Chung's art? Like, I, I like it pretty well. I mean, it's no Adam Polina, so it, it suffers a bit in comparison, but I think it's good. I like it for the most part, but there's one thing that really, really 
bugs me that is sort of an itch under my skin anytime I'm reading his comics, and that's that he draws everyone's nose exactly the same. Oh shit, now I can't unsee it. You're totally right. It's it's really, really noticeable once you're looking for it. Noticeable. Hmm. Ouch. Well, X-Force is back from Hawaii. They did not stay to raise kids in Hawaii, which means they're back in San Francisco living in the warehouse that Sunspot was able to buy with the money that his corporation gave him to just leave them alone for a while. God, I want someone to pay me huge amounts of money to just fuck off. Seriously, that would be the best job. And Chung here does a great job with just the varied buildings and textures and hills of San Francisco. Uh, I know we've both spent a little time there, here and there, and I think he really nails the look of it. Like, it's not just this sort of California tropical paradise type place. It, it very much has its own character. Now, Bobby is pretty excited about their new digs. He's got someone renovating it. He says, you know, soon the X-Men are going to want to crash with them. But Boom Boom is really not into this whole thing. This is not the sunspot that she recently fell for. This is the old sunspot that she was on a team with forever and had absolutely zero interest in. And there's also a catch, because in their new home are not contractors, but a random dude they've never met. He's a young black man with, in a sports coat and jeans, sitting in their chair, just waiting for them to come home. Yeah. Uh, so, real quick, let's talk coloring here. So, Marie Javins colors this. She, co- she colors a ton of X-Men uh, for years and years and years. And she colors Sunspot's skin when he's not powered up as gray. And we've certainly seen that before for black characters, especially in older comics where coloring technology was not so hot compared to later. But she colors Jesse Aronson, this guy, with like a warm brown skin tone. So does does she just think that Sunspot is gray, that he goes from gray to like pure black when he powers up? It's very weird and confusing. The gray Sunspot is just a weird choice in general. And it it, it looks like... Like you said, it looks like bad coloring until we see that, no, she can't actually color black characters. This is just specific to Sunspot, and it's just kind of baffling. It's very strange. Um, eh, you know, whatever. So their place is still packed up and very empty, but I do want to point out there is a Kate Sith, or Ket She, Final Fantasy VII uh, action figure sitting on top of the TV that Jesse is watching. Later on, there will be, like, a, a chibi Lara Croft riding a cartoon pig in the corner. Like, Jim Chung's art, initially I was like, yeah, this is fine. And then I started seeing little touches like that, and maybe it's just because we share overlapping nerderies, but I became more and more charmed. Fair enough. Back to this dude. Back to Jesse Aronson. If that name rings a bell, uh, it's because this is a character we've seen before, kind of. That's right. His counterpart in the Age of Apocalypse was one of the Bedlam brothers in AOA's Factor X. Um, They worked with Cyclops and Havoc in Sinister's Elite Mutant Force. In Age of Apocalypse, they seemed much older, late 20s at least. Um, They were very tough and confident and all about violence and women and luxury, but overall decent. Uh, Also, interestingly, in The Age of Apocalypse, Jesse's brother was named Terry in the main universe. We'll learn that his brother is Christopher. Uh, Jesse can disrupt machines. Terry slash Christopher can disrupt minds. Terry is short for Christopher. Oh, well, that makes sense. Chris Terry for, yeah. So there's some fascinating context here before we get to the actual story of what Jesse Aronson is doing here. According to editor Kelly Corvise in Wizard Number 41, the Earth 616 version of either Jesse or Terry from the Age of Apocalypse uh, was supposed to be in Earth 616 without a brother and was supposed to join X Factor at some point, uh, which makes sense because these were Factor X characters. 
And at the same time, that same Aronson brother from the Age of Apocalypse would have been one of the SKPs like X-Man or the Sugar Man or Dark Beast or whatever. And so we would have these two identical Aronsons, one missing his dead brother, the other without a brother, interacting all weirdly with each other. But uh, none of that ever happened. X-Factor obviously went in a very different direction. And then went away entirely. And so now we have one of the Bedlam brothers, who in fact has a superhero name of Bedlam, here in X-Force. And he'll be around for a surprisingly long time for a character that not many people talk about these days. Now, this is not the first Bedlam in Earth-616. A character named Bedlam the Brain Blast was an Alpha Flight villain, but the less said about him, the better. Anyway, uh, this Bedlam, Jesse Aronson, knows a bunch about X-Force's identities and powers and is so psyched to meet them. He's like a very smooth fanboy, basically. Uh, Boom Boom's not impressed. Anyway, he's here not just because he thinks they're cool, but also to get their help in rescuing Domino. See, apparently Jesse has been looking for his missing brother, Chris Terryfer, and as a trade to help get Domino's help with that task, he has offered to her, where he finds her in a bar, to help her find her old nemesis, Ekaterina Gryaznova, the one that implanted the thing in her head that has messed up her powers. One thing we learn about Jesse immediately, well, two things. One, he's very earnest and nice, and the other, he is excellent at gathering information. Or he's got an excellent source. But unfortunately, the guards at the Aguilar Institute, which is where Jesse has tracked Gryaznova, uh, are in much more impressive robot suits than Jesse or Domino were expecting, and they manage to kidnap Domino, causing Jesse to get the hell out of there. And he feels so bad about this, so of course, he uses his information to go find her other friends and get their help in rescuing her. So, off X-Force heads, and we should take a moment now to talk about the Aguilar Institute. That is a place on the northern California coast that's been mentioned before. That's where Dr. Ogata, Dr. Joshua, and Dr. Chandra work. They were the ones who rebuilt Domino's nemesis, Ekaterina Grasnova, into a prime sentinel to spy on the prime sentinels. And Dr. Joshua, in particular, was the one that did that weird experiment on Sunspot way back in late New Mutants that ended up creating Rainfire. So basically, it's an institute that does, like, fucked up science. Now, Domino, after being captured, was taken to its new leader, the Griffin, who, it turns out, is actually a Katarina Grasnova, um, looking very, very different than when we last saw her. Yeah, her skin is a mass of burns and bone, and she's covered in, like, a techno-armor exoskeleton. Honestly, she looks awesome. She does look pretty awesome. Apparently what happened in between issues that we never got to see is that Bastion found out she was a double agent, that she wasn't just an anti-mutant prime sentinel, but that she'd been inserted into the program by the Aguilar Institute and uh, the people that run it, which we'll learn more about later, to spy on Operation Zero Tolerance. So, as a punishment slash revenge, he caused all the prime sentinel nanomachines in her to go haywire, which pretty much destroyed her body, and it had to be rebuilt by the Aguilar Institute scientists, hence her looking pretty different. The Aguilar Institute is very AIM in a lot of ways. They're very AIM, but with a different origin. They have some yeah. unexpected people behind them. We will get to that. Oh yeah, we're going to learn all about them over the next few arcs. Yeah, they're kind of like the new, not exactly big bads, but a, a big opposing force for a while in X-Force. 
So X-Force and Jesse attack, and they fight all the guards, and Jesse sneaks in to rescue Domino amid the various explosions. Uh, he's able to use his powers to short out technology to short out the techno implant that's been fucking her powers up, and she's back in business. After all this time, Domino no longer has a little nanomachine in the back of her head yelling, hey, 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 all the time and distracting her. Yay! And this is great, because she's able to defeat even the extremely souped-up Griasnova. Unfortunately, Griasnova turns out to have been a load-bearing boss, and she activates the complex's self-destruct. Oh, it's like the end of a Resident Evil game. Which one, you might ask? Basically all of them, I would reply. So, the rest of X-Force manages to show up, having beaten all the guards and gotten their costumes pretty ripped up uh, to show for that. So I guess, like, rub some whiskey on your gums like you're teething, but don't take a full drink. Uh, And they save Jesse and Domino from the ensuing explosion, at which point Domino rejoins the team. And Jesse apparently has also decided he's on the team because he just, like, flops on the couch and asks if they can order pizza, and all of them scowl at him. And I kind of love this guy. He's just—I mean, he just assumes that he's very welcome and that everybody wants to be his friend the way he wants to be their friend. And I kind of get, like, more 90s long shot vibes from him, almost. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. He's so great. Also, he has a very neat little goatee. Um, It must take a lot of time to maintain. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe part of his power is, that, is his power is that it just grows that way. Oh man! If I could choose like a really minor mutant power, it would be for my beard to grow in freaking symmetrically instead of me having to trim it into symmetry all the time. I tell ya. Ah, oh, buddy. Anyway, that brings us to X Force number eighty-three, Homefront. This is written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Jim Chung, inked by Mark Morales and Rob Stull, colored by Marie Javits, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. And it starts with former X-Force leader Sam Guthrie heading home for a visit. Uh, he knows something's going on with his mom. Um, what it turns out is that she's got Guillain-Barre syndrome, it's a neurological disease, which isn't fatal, but she's going to need to be hospitalized for treatment while it runs its course. It's a pretty rough disease. I've, I knew a person who had it. Not, not fun. But yes, thankfully, definitely treatable most of the time. And Sam immediately offers to move back home, but she's already made plans for the family to stay with a cousin while she's in the hospital, and presumably the cousin's house has an indeterminate number of bedrooms to house the indeterminate number of Guthrie kids. I'll say indeterminate. Lucinda Guthrie at one point mentions that with Sam and his sister Paige, you know, husk of Generation X gone, she's got five kids at home. Lucinda, I hate to tell you, you've actually got seven to eight kids at home, plus you're going to adopt a son later. Like, I know it's really hard to remember, but but lady, come on. You expect her to keep track of that many? Ugh, I mean, we barely can. I, I do love this. I love this accidental running gag in the Marvel Universe that, like, there are just more and more Guthries as people forget who's who or add different ones. Like, at one point, Sam mentions that he got a letter from his brother Zack about this. We actually find out that when we see this that scene in X-Men, we'll cover that soon, um, it was from his brother Josh, but I guess maybe there's now a Zack Guthrie. Maybe, like, we're in some quantumly entangled universe with one that is identical except Josh is really Zack. Josh is short for Zach. Oh, yeah, right, of course. And Sam, yeah, this, well, well, he's not happy about the circumstances. He was glad to have an excuse to get away from the X-Men because he's really been rethinking his place on the team, whether he really belongs there, whether it's where he wants to be. He feels like he's kind of going through the motions, like he needs something more, but hasn't quite figured out yet what that is. 
One thing I really appreciate here is that he tells his mom that even though his youth was spent at the X-Mansion, I mean, the New Mutant stayed there for a long, long time. These days he's in the same place, but he just feels like he's a guest in somebody else's house. And that's such a perfect way of just summing up the way he doesn't feel at home, the way he feels like he should feel at home, but doesn't. Now, at this point, the Guthries are planning to move to Lexington. When we next see them um, in Uncanny X-Men number 437, they're still going to be in Cumberland, but maybe they've moved to Lexington and then come back. Who knows? Maybe. I mean, there is some continuity, though. Like, Lucinda mentions that Josh has applied to a music conservatory in Lexington, and certainly music is going to be a big part of his life later. So Sam is is still concerned, and, and once his mom's asleep, he goes blasting to clear his head. And as he's doing that, he sees a young woman sprinting into the closed mine where he used to work. And I love all this focus on Cannonball, seeing him as a son, as a you know, one of the eldest children, I think the eldest child in the Guthrie yeah. family. Yeah, he's the eldest. Yeah, but basically coming back here very much as an adult. And the way he's drawn is very much as an adult. He looks pretty serious a lot of the time. He looks very physically powerful. There's a panel of him uh, putting on a shirt, and the house is dark, but you see the light from the window coming through and illuminating him. And he just seems like a grown-up. And I love that contrast with how he's been portrayed in X-Men. I think that's very smart on Jim Chung's part, whether it was deliberate or not. I love that when he's at home or soon with X-Force, he's able to really be the adult he's grown into. It's just when he's around the X-Men that all of a sudden he's a kid again. And I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, I know sometimes I'll go home to where I grew up and all of a sudden I just start acting like I did when I was a teenager and I have to catch myself and stop myself. So Sam, we know as a teenager, still had a pretty firmly rooted sense of heroism, so probably would have done exactly what he does here, which is to follow the girl he sees going into the mines to try to warn her away. The mine is closed, and it's not safe. But as it turns out, it's a trap, and he is ambushed by a large green man. This large green man, we will eventually learn, is the delightfully named Ulysses Dragonblood. Ulysses also has a brother named Odysseus, which, well, yeah, that's a choice. Okay, for uh, people who uh, don't have classics backgrounds, we should probably explain. They're the same person. Ulysses and Odysseus are, are the um, Roman and Greek names for the same character. I, I, I kind of love that. I'm sure that was deliberate, but it, it tickles me. Uh, Ulysses, Dragonblood, and Odysseus Indigo are not the same person. This is this is not actually a tease to that, which I, bugs me because I feel like if you're going to do that, you should have them turn out to be the same person. I agree. Oh, well. Anyway, um, Ulysses and the girl, the Arcadia, um, whom we mentioned in the cold open, think Sam is something they refer to as a hunter, and they work out that he's not, but they still knock him out and head outside only to be ambushed by the real hunters. And uh, now Conscious Sam rushes in to help, figuring, well, if somebody's trying to kill somebody, that side must be the bad guys. But uh, the odds are not good. And we'll get back to that, but uh, meanwhile in San Francisco... Jesse is enjoying a nightclub when he realizes he's being tracked by menacing people in nice suits. And they catch him, they catch up with him, and they threaten to turn him over to someone called the Void. And this is never going to be elaborated on, and it bothers me. Um, and then X-Force shows up to intervene. Yeah, we have, you know, Siren, Boom Boom, Proudstar, and Sunspot, uh, all in their yellow and purple X-Force outfits that they've been wearing since the Jeff Loeb run. But then there's also Moonstar, who's joined since then. She's basically wearing civilian clothes. Like, her superhero outfit is 
a red sleeveless shirt and blue jorts. And then there's Domino wearing her black cat suit with pink highlights. I like that some of them are in a uniform and others aren't. It really emphasizes how they used to be this official military almost operation under cable, but they've just sort of grown in different directions organically, but like not in a way that overwrites their past. Like as much as I love uniforms and everyone having their own little take on a theme, I like how disparate X-Forces looks are at this point. It fits where they are. Now you might think that what follows this confrontation is a big knockdown brawl. And you would, you would be forgiven for thinking that, but for once you would be wrong, because for once everyone talks things out like adults. It is shocking. And one of the suits turns out to be a fellow named Lucas Wyndham. He is an astronaut, and he has the single best character reference in the Marvel Universe. That's right, he is bros with super doctor astronaut Peter Corbeau, who, if you are a longtime listener, you may recognize as the most competent man in the world. Yeah. Oh, and we're going to get to talk more about Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau in a really soon episode. I'm so excited. But Lucas Wyndham, well done. Like, I've got some cool co-workers, but not as cool as yours. I mean, no one, no one on this earth is as cool as Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau. He is what distinguishes the Marvel Universe. It's not the superheroes. It's SDAPC. And he's just so humble about it. I can't say a single bad thing about him. Well, anyway, Lucas Wyndham isn't working with the man, the myth, the legend right now. He's with the other people in suits, and they're part of a different organization entirely. That is Muse, the somewhat torturously named Mutant Underground Support Engine. Do you think that's one of those groups where they picked the uh, acronym first and had to figure out what it stood for second? I do. I think they, they figured out that it was going to be Mutant Underground, but they had to come up with the last two letters, and they, they just kind of blanked and and someone suggested support engine and they were like great print it print the business cards so we should disambiguate here because the mutant underground of course is an organization that we have heard about so what's the difference between the mutant underground and the mutant underground support engine the mutant underground is basically just charles xavier's network of people who are hip to mutant stuff that that's really it like there are there are larger functions within it but that is ultimately what the mutant underground is Muse is actually kind of similar in function. Um, they describe themselves as sort of a search and rescue team for endangered mutants. They monitor mutant activity. They don't have a cerebro or anything like that, but they, they monitor Newswire, the internet, journals, tabloids, and they've got a bunch of government contacts who slip them classified information. And they try to intervene when mutants are in trouble, you know, take them somewhere where they can safely grow up and, and learn to use their powers. And it's not really specified what happens after that. They kind of remind me of what the original five X-Men did early, early on in X-Factor when they were the X-Terminators. Like, they would find ways to rescue mutants and just get them out of trouble and sort of keep them safe, young mutants especially. Yeah, I don't think Muse does the fake mutant hunters thing, but, I mean, they, they could. They're menacing enough. Um, And Jesse was one of their rescues, but they were also grooming him to be a field agent. And before he left, he accessed a bunch of unauthorized stuff in their system. He used their system's connection to hack into S.H.I.E.L.D., and then he split. So that's why they're they're out to find him. Like, it's it's not just, you know, you work for us, we own you. It's, wow, you really jeopardized our entire operation, dude. What the fuck? Well, Jesse answers what that fuck is, which is that he was searching for his brother, Chris Fur, who apparently may or may not exist, according to the suit folks. It's a very summer situation. Um, so... 
Jesse and Chris were separated by social workers after their parents died, and Jesse was committed to a psychiatric institution at 13, where his powers manifested, and his doctor kept him to experiment on until Muse intervened. And then Jesse went to live on a farm with nice people and horses. Except Muse doesn't think that Chris ever existed. They think that Jesse made him up kind of as an imaginary friend um, because he was so lonely. Uh, and there is no existing record of 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 Chris Terry for anywhere. Like, there are no birth certificate, nothing. As for how they know all about X-Force, and thus how Jesse knew all about X-Force, they point out that X-Force really doesn't keep a very low profile. I mean, look at their frickin' costumes. And they, they list a series of, of incidents in which they were very publicly visible. And apparently, between those and, and Muse's contacts and general access, it was really, really easy to track them down to not only San Francisco, but their specific warehouse. Which brings us to X-Force number 84, By the Sword, plotted by John Francis Moore with dialogue by Jay Farber, pencils by Jim Chung, inks by Ray McCarthy, colors by Marie Javings, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comacraft and Emerson Miranda, and the folks chasing Arcadia are the eponymous sword. On Their names are Argos, Stranglehold, Zona, and Pyre. I should point out here that the Sword are not just a group of bad guys in the Marvel Universe. They are also a very good Doom slash stoner metal band. I recommend their album Apocryphon. It's fucking excellent. Uh, also, I really like these guys. Their designs are so cool. Each of them has, like, a different main color. Like, there's the translucent yellow energy guy, the armored predator-looking blue guy, the centurion-type red guy, the ghostly black and white lady. They just look really neat together. And the Sword are, like Ulysses, deviants. And yeah, and deviants are, are an offshoot of humanity that, that as we mentioned in the cold open, are an offshoot from Homo erectus rather than Homo sapiens created by the Celestials. Yeah, the Deviants and the Eternals, like, really hate each other. Unlike the Eternals movie, in the comics, they aren't weird dog monsters all the time. They're just, like, kind of slightly monstery but very humanoid people. Meanwhile, Arcadia lifts Sam's wallet and finds a photo of X-Force, it's very cute, and Sam explains that those are his friends and they're mutants and awesome, so Arcadia teleports them, or at least teleports every all of them who are in the photo, um, out of the B-plot and into Cumberland, Kentucky. Yeah, I love that because Domino wasn't there when the photo was taken, and like, Jesse's brand new, they're just sort of left behind, just looking around, like, what the hell happened? You know, it happens. And the team lands straight in a fight with Sword, which goes fairly poorly for X-Force for a lot of reasons, one of which is that Psywar is is going on in the background, and of course Danielle Moonstar's powers are psionic. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing I really like. It's like that time in Walter Simonson's Thor run, where Malekith the Accursed unleashed the Casket of Ancient Winters to create the Fimble Winter on Midgard, star caption, Earth. And so, like, in every comic that month, uh, everything was just very wintry and nobody knew why. It's the same thing, but all the telepaths are getting fucked with as Psylocke and the Shadow King are having their duel. It's really fun. So with the aid of a lance stolen from a sword member, Sam, Tabitha, Ulysses, and Arcadia finally managed to get the upper hand. And Arcadia turns the unconscious sword members to crystal and is about to smash them when Danny tries to intervene and is also transmuted into something crystalline because Arcadia can't fully control her powers. And yeah, Moonstar getting turned all blue and sparkly. She looks a little like Captain Universe, actually, if oh, anyone's she does, familiar. You're right. Yeah, um, that seems like just a little one-off thing, like, oh, what happened? That was our evidence that Arcadia's powers are not controllable, but that's actually going to lead into some really big plot stuff over the next many, many issues, and I'm excited about that. Now, Ulysses subdues Arcadia, and once she's unconscious, 
everyone reverts back to normal, both both Danny and the, the sword guys. And after some cursory explanation and delightful Kirby homage, Ulysses and Arcadia head off in Sword's ship, and Sam rejoins X-Force. Look, I'm not saying all's forgiven, but I'm willing to try. Now, I should be getting back home. My mom's gonna be worried when she finds I've been gone all night. And a mysterious dude in New Mexico, this will be, of course, Odysseus Indigo, decides it's time to either recruit or kill X-Force. Meanwhile, in San Francisco... Domino agrees to help Jesse look for his brother and calls in a mysterious contact. And meanwhile, on the internet, you've got questions. Kryptonians asks on Tumblr, I was listening to the X-Factor finale, and it got me wondering... Considering the relative autonomy that Shard enjoys despite being a hologram and being from an alternate future timeline, can she be resurrected by the Five? If they can, can they bring her back in a flesh-and-bone body, or would she still be a hologram? Have they covered this and I missed it? The rules of could and should seem a bit nebulous at best. Assuming this doesn't pose a logistical issue, would you bring her back? Would you bring her back as flesh or as a hologram? Or would you do a secret third thing? So I think... It's. I, I don't think it would be feasible for Shard to be resurrected by the Five just because of when she was alive and when Xavier would have gotten a print of her, her mind. However, I think if she were resurrected, it would be really important that she be resurrected as a hologram, or at least from the mind of the holographic Shard, because if she were resurrected from original Shard, she would have none of her memories, none of her experiences— as, as Hollow Shard, like none of her 20th century life would be there. So my vote if she came back would be, be for Hollow Shard. Yeah, we saw something kind of similar when Laura Kinney uh, ended up in the vault where time flows really fast and uh, was killed there. So even though she had spent inside that like a hundred years or something with Sink and they'd fallen in love, when Sink got out and Laura was resurrected, she had no memory of any of that, and it was really sad for him, until some other stuff happened more recently that was much happier. But, uh, yeah, yeah, bringing back Hollow Shard, I agree, that would be the way to go. She has so much experience with various X characters, so many memories, so many relationships. I don't know if the Five would do that, or if some various techno-wizard would, since Shard's hologram-ness was, was killed at some point. But, um, I would love to see her come back. She's a really fun character. She really, really is. Jimmy asks via email, Do you ever find that things you said in previous episodes foreshadowed or predicted future storylines? A big thing that comes to mind is talking about evil sexy Mora. Given recent continuity, it seems like you dropping a big tease for a future storyline, but I believe the podcast came out in 2017, so obviously that's not the case. I was just curious if you ever go back and catch yourself making predictions for the Krakoan Age. Well, to be honest, we don't actually listen to our old episodes very often because no. all of our time is spent making new ones. Uh, occasionally I do, and it's fun, but it's it's very rare. It's it's weird. Sometimes we'll have uh, listeners uh, reference something funny or cool we said in a past episode, and like we don't remember it at all, so it's fun to be really impressed with our past selves. Like, I did make a funny joke. Well done, me. Well done, Jay. Damn, those Jay and Miles kids sure know what they're talking about. Right? And meanwhile, we're here trying to write episodes like, oh, what are we even doing? Why do people still listen to us? Who are you even? Uh, okay, but here's the thing, to actually address your question. 
almost everything in the Krakoan era comes from, like, genuine continuity, which has been very earned. That's something Jonathan Hickman was very good at, and a lot of the current creators are also very good at. So, Beast's Dark Turn, the Scotchian Logan triad, Sinister's various machinations, even the true relationship between the Technarchy and the Phalanx, that was, that comes from continuity. It, it makes sense. It's a build on all of that. The only stuff that really doesn't build on old continuity are the really big shocks, the major, major retcons, like like you mentioned, the nature of Moira X and of Apocalypse's newly revealed past and family with the whole Okara thing. So occasionally we'll discuss something that seems like it could be related to one of those big twists, like Evil Sexy Moira, who I agree you could work that into foreshadowing for the true nature of Moira McTaggart and Moira X— but I think it's just one of those things where, like, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. I think it's kind of accidental. There are, of course, at this point, also bits in continuity that actually reference jokes that we made in the podcast, which I don't think really counts as foreshadowing since they're they're a back reference, but um, I'm not really sure how you'd count those. Every time we see one of those, I am just goddamn delighted. I won't lie, I'm a little vain, and I love approval, and so seeing, like, real comics talk about stupid shit we were talking about in the podcast is the most gratifying goddamn thing that, you know, other than the really gratifying things that are involving people's lives being better and stuff. The most gratifying, meaningless thing. The most gratifying, meaningful thing, on the other hand, are our listeners. Um, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts, and today the mic goes to Sexy Rogue. Well, I'll be. I think I shall be flattered that Siren chose to emulate my distinctive speech patterns to distract that rascal the Vanisher. Now, his brain's like a BB in a boxcar, but I do appreciate the compliment nonetheless. But, Siren, it ain't just the accent that gets your trotting harness on. It ain't just how you say it, but what you say. So when I'm flirting with Jorge E. Rios Garza, well, if all I did was flash a grin and let my accent do its thing, that dog won't hunt. But if I call Jorge fine as frog's hair while batting my eyes like a toad in a hailstorm, that's a different tale to be told. And I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. When Alan Jordan comes round like the Tomcat's kitten, and with nothing between Alan and the Lord but a smile, you'd best believe I'd be calling Alan hotter than a pepper sprout in hellfire. And I ain't calling you, Siren, slower and cream rising on buttermilk, but you ain't plowed this furrow clean down to bedrock yet. Keep that mule a-pullin', girl. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, the sword is sheathed. As Excalibur reaches its conclusion.
While you're at it, you might want to keep April 13th clear on your calendars.